welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Duke, joined again by Jessica Burbank because it is Rising Friday and we're here to bring you the news. Happy Rising Friday, Amber, and all of our wonderful Rising viewers who we love very dearly. Amber, what's going on over in D.C.? Well, Jessica, yesterday, New York Judge Arthur Engeron denied former President Trump's request and declined to delay enforcement of the $355 million in penalties Trump was fined in his civil fraud case. As of Engeron's ruling last Friday, Trump has 30 days to cough up the 300-some-odd million dollars. Meanwhile, down in Georgia, evidentiary hearings over motions to dismiss District Attorney Fonnie Willis from the state's prosecution of Donald Trump concluded without closing statements. Nathan Wade, who was also facing dismissal from the case, pushed back against the judge's plans to interview his former attorney and associate regarding the timeline of his and Willis's relationship. In the meantime, the Fulton County Board of Ethics will discuss ethics complaints against Willis during their March 7th meeting. Meanwhile, let's check in with how things are going on the other side of the aisle. Now, the Biden White House said it was time for Republicans to drop their impeachment inquiry against the president after his brother, James Biden, testified Wednesday that the pair had no involvement in one another's business dealings. Yesterday, the FBI informant indicated or indicted for making up allegations central to the impeachment case against President Biden was rearrested after prosecutors appealed a judge ruling that had allowed him to be released with a GPS monitor ahead of the trial. Now, the New York Post reported yesterday that a senior CBS reported laid off, or senior CBS reporter rather, was laid off while working on reporting on the Hunter and Joe Biden case, whether or not they had their confidential files seized by CBS in an unprecedented move. Per the Post, the network took Catherine Harridge's notes upon terminating her employment and haven't given them back. One source told the Post, quote, they never seize documents when you're let go. They want to see what damaging documents she has. I found that to be kind of shocking. I don't know about you, Amber, but I understand it's standard protocol at so many places to sort of lock down someone's office to make sure they can't get on their computer because there's all kinds of things they could do in retaliation because they're upset they're being fired. Now, it's my understanding that a rep also told the Post, a rep from CBS, that is, that they've locked down the office, they're not going through her files, and if she comes, you know, with her own representation, then she'll be able to retrieve her files. But it's unclear if that just applies to physical documents or the files on her computer as well. Yeah, I'm really uh, hoping that that's the case, that she is able to get those notes and files back. Um, I've been fired from media jobs before, which is not a secret. I've also left jobs on good terms. It has never been the case in my experience that I have been uh, not able to take my notes, my sources, the things that I'm investigating with me. And I think it's very troubling that CBS is, um, is giving this perception, at least, that they are trying to take her files away from her. Um, if what that rep says is true, then that's good. She should be allowed to take those. Um, the idea that a media outlet would try to take a journalist's sources and potentially get insight into who she was talking to and where she was getting her information from outside of the normal editorial process is very, very concerning. Um, I want to go back to the first, uh, the first story that we hit on in this in this opening, which is this Trump judgment out of New York. And Judge Egneron has decided that Trump is not able to delay the collection on this $355 million judgment pending an appeals process, which means he's going to have to post that $355 million 
plus about $100 million in interest on an appeal bond just to be able to continue appealing the case without going through the collections process, which is supposed to start in 30 days. In this case, it seems like the process is the punishment um, in terms of what Judge Engeron has handed down. And I think it's important to remember, too, the details of this case in terms of just how I think bogus the entire uh, verdict was. This case started with Judge Engeron determining that Mar-a-Lago, or accepting a judgment, rather, that Mar-a-Lago, the Florida resort, was only worth $18 million. The land alone would have been worth much more than that. Um, there were quibbles over the square footage in Trump's New York condo, which there is a reasonable explanation for why that uh, square footage was put the way that it was by Trump's team when they were trying to get these loans from banks. But most importantly, there was no apparent victim in this fraud case. The banks who testified, uh, who had done these loan deals with Trump, said that they were actually quite happy with the course of business, that they would do business with Trump again, that they actually made money on their deals. He paid everything back in full. And typically, when you have a fraud case like this, there has to be someone who has, who has uh, been a victim of that fraud. And that wasn't the case here. Um, I think this is a, out of all of the cases that Trump has been facing, this one, to me, reeks as the most political and politicized. I would say, you know, the victims of this crime are probably just like business owners who would have gotten loans from those banks had that capital not gone to Donald Trump. He made $370 million in ill-gotten gains, according to the financial records here. So that's, you know, loans that he's gotten that he wouldn't have gotten otherwise or capital gains he made off of those loans that he wouldn't have had if he had not inflated the price of his assets, which, you know, on his own tax records, that same property in, in Florida, in Mar-a-Lago, was listed at around 18 million. And then to get loans and on his own records of financial assets, it was over 700 million. So that's an insane differential there. So when his own records are showing that at one point on his taxes, it was 18 million as reported by him and his team. And then when he's trying to get loans and inflate his assets for Forbes, which we know he did through the testimony in this case, you know, and saying it's $700 million, it's pretty deliberate. I mean, is it is it a case where someone's physically hurt or, you know, does it have the same weight as a lot of the, the criminal cases we hear? No, of, of course not. You know, no one's been hit by Donald Trump or murdered, right? So it doesn't seem bad. But is it bad that $370 million could have been had by small businesses in New York City? I just think that it's just dishonest of him to, to do this. But Letitia James's response of not granting this stay, I think, just makes sense in this case because what that would do would it would prevent the court in New York from seizing his assets in other states. And of course, he used his assets in other states in the state of Florida to get the loans in New York City. So why should they not be able to seize those assets in order for this settlement to be paid in full? Yeah, I think the problem here is that there's a difference between a tax assessment value and a fair market value. And when you're trying to get a loan from a bank, you would typically use the larger of those two valuations. It's a standard practice in real estate. A tax assessment value is generally a percentage of the fair market value. So it's normal that it would be significantly lower. Um, that's 
pretty much how everybody operates in terms of deciding what their property value is. Um, so to me, I think the judge in this case just fundamentally didn't understand the difference between those two numbers and how exactly they're calculated. Not to mention that banks have their own independent auditors and their own independent assessors who determine the true value of someone's property. So they're not just going based off of Trump's word when they're giving him a loan. So the idea that he wouldn't have gotten them um, if he had supposedly given them this $18 million tax assessment value, I don't think is accurate because the banks would have done their own determination as to whether or not this was good business. I know we're running a little bit out of time on this segment, but let's get to the Fonnie Willis uh, incident. We talked a little bit about this last week in terms of whether or not she could be disqualified from this case. Her testimony, uh, whoever told her it was a good idea to do that, was obviously um, drunk or high or something because it's just horrible what she went up there and did, um, basically admitted to campaign finance violations, um, tried to over-explain her way out of the fact that she apparently lied about when her and Nathan Wade's relationship began. And just, I want to get your thoughts, Jess, on whether or not you think she will ultimately be removed from this case after this, uh, this recent testimony and evaluation of her and Nathan Wade's relationship and whether or not there was a level of corruption and self-dealing here. I think there's going to reach a point where Fonnie Willis realizes it's the best thing to do uh, to step down. I, I don't think she'll be forced out. I would hate to see that. I think her, you know, stepping down and having another prosecutor take over the case would be best for the result of the case uh, because a lot of this drama is really distracting from what they're there to prosecute, which is how Donald Trump handled getting the results in for the 2020 election in Fulton County, Georgia. I was in Georgia on that day. And there were people protesting in Fulton County. There were people who were very upset and we were wondering if the same thing that happened at the Capitol, you know, was, was happening in, in Fulton County on the day of January 6th. So there was a lot of energy around overturning the election, election fraud there. That's really what the focus of this case should be. So I think, you know, what's going to happen is things will come to a head and it won't be that she ends up, you know, being uh, forced out. I think, you know, sh if she is getting forced out, but she'll save the face by saying it's her own decision. But I want to go back to quickly the valuation of Trump's property. This was a differential that was huge, 18 million versus over 700 million. It was around, you know, two to three percent is what it was valued at as it's as tax reports showed by Donald Trump compared to, you know, the, the market value. That's a differential that's usually 80 to 90%. And what was reported on taxes was 2.5% about. So yes, it's usually different, but not different to the magnitude that Trump reported it was. All right, we'll be back with more Rising after this. Can you hear me now? No? Tens of thousands of AT&T and Verizon customers across the nation yesterday were in for a rude surprise when they were unable to get any service through the network for hours yesterday in an event that the federal government is now investigating. The outages started popping up just before 3.30 a.m. Eastern, spiking at more than 73,000 just after 9 a.m. The outages were mostly concentrated in the Houston, Atlanta, Miami, and Chicago metro areas, but affected customers across the country. But the question on many Americans' minds, what caused the mass outages? Was this a terror attack by the Russians? A mass solar flare? An over-eager beaver chewing on a power line? None of those, in fact, just good old human error. AT&T blamed bad code as the culprit 
for the almost apocalyptic level of service outages, writing on their website, quote, based on our initial review, we believe that today's outage was caused by the application and execution of an incorrect process used as we are expanding our network, not a cyber attack. We are continuing our assessment of today's outage to ensure we keep delivering the service that our customers deserve. So 12 hours is a really long time for an outage, Amber. I think about all of the people reportedly calling 911 just to see if their calls went through. 74,000 people reported that you know their service was out. I'm sure a lot of other people didn't report, but just went online, went on Twitter to see if they were the only ones and discovered this was an AT&T-wide outage. A very scary thing, especially when we know cybersecurity is not something that our military has been investing in as much compared to other militaries. Yeah, and this is not the first time that we've had cases where cyber attacks have taken a uh, place against key American industries. A couple of years ago, there were attacks on our shipping industry, on our trains. And so it's not out of the question to, uh, to think that this could potentially happen to our mobile carriers the way that most people communicate nowadays. I got to say, this, this whole scenario um, is making the doomsday preppers seem more and more sane by the day. Um, I feel that way increasingly recently. And I'm also thinking twice now about uh, making fun of my husband for wanting us to have a landline phone. Uh, maybe he's right. I mean, when you're in a situation where so much of your ability to communicate with other people is down, um, especially in an emergency situation, I imagine there were people who were actually trying to get through to 911 because they had legitimate reasons to call them outside of just their phones being down and not being able to get through is obviously a serious problem. Um, and even just in terms of daily communication, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's such a huge part of our lives now that to think a coding error could have uh, destroyed that ability for so many Americans is incredibly concerning. And I think also raises questions about the, uh, the monopoly, I guess you could say, that a few wireless carriers really have on the ability of Americans to communicate via phone, text, internet, what have you. Um, when one of them goes down or one of them becomes the victim of a cyber attack, it makes it that much easier to disrupt service for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans. It becomes very quickly a national crisis. I'm very curious if the result of this is going to be a bunch of people switching networks from AT&T to another service provider. I was just scrolling through what people were saying who were AT&T customers on X, the app formerly known as Twitter. And a lot of people were saying that they were on the phone with customer service, of course, once they got service back, uh, asking about what they would get in return. Can they have vouchers? One guy asked for a $1,000 voucher. And if he didn't get it, he said he was going to switch his service. And then the customer service agent, according to him, was giving him advice about how to switch providers. So <laughs> I don't know what AT&T's response is. Certainly not $1,000 per customer that experienced this outage. But I think it does evoke a certain kind of fear. We had the Houthi rebels reportedly sharing a map on Telegram of the undersea cables at the bottom of the ocean that give us internet access. 17% of the world depends on these cables that pass through the Red Sea. And I think there's a lot of things that we realize uh, when we get reporting like this, that the infrastructure we depend on for our largely online world and communication uh, that spans, you know, regions that it didn't just 50 years ago 
it's very scary realizing how fragile that infrastructure really is. Yeah, and, and if I may bring up an analogy, you know, this kind of reminds me of the situation that we're in with our energy supply as well, right? Because we really rely on foreign countries um, for most of our, our natural gas and our oil at this point. We don't produce as much domestically as we did even just a few years ago. And unfortunately, when we rely on other countries for that energy, then we are susceptible to global events in a way that we might not be if we had more of an independent uh, ability to produce energy. I mean, look at what happened with the Nord Stream pipeline, right? Or uh, when there are wars in the Middle East, all of a sudden Americans are relying on a very uh, volatile industry, very volatile countries um, in order to get their energy. And it ends up making costs extremely high for everyday Americans. And I, I think it's a similar situation with our communication ability, whether that's internet, phone service, what have you. Um, it, it raises a lot of questions about the national security implications of offshoring a lot of our things that we rely on for our daily lives, and even also the national security concerns of allowing just a few, a handful of people to control, uh, to control those industries. I think that's huge, right? Just the fact that so many people were affected by one company going down speaks to the oligopoly we have in so many industries in the United States, from you know the shortages around formula for babies to now the AT&T shortage. I think people are realizing that that puts our, everyone living within our economic system at risk when we have the, the industry consolidated into a few major corporations. And the fact that we have a global economy should theoretically mean that any kind of attack on a country's economy, whether it's attacking shipping, the supply chain, or attacking our internet service, which is something that our economy depends on. A lot of people are working from home. A lot of business is done online these days. That does affect our economy. Theoretically, with a global economy, people's markets or different countries' markets are so intertwined that, you know, harming one country will affect the people in another. And in the case of Russia, we're currently considering sanctions following the death of Navalny. And when we look back on the sanctions we placed on Russia when they initially invaded Ukraine, we had the ruble go down immediately. It was, you know, 120 to the dollar before February 27th, then it went down to 72 to the dollar. And then Putin said, hey, okay, there's sanctions on me, but my response is unfriendly countries now must pay for Russian gas in rubles in our currency. And within a month, European countries were paying for Russian gas in rubles, and they still are to this day. So to some degree, when we're sanctioning Russia, we're making them stronger. So this idea that we're not all con connected to, to some degree, uh, is not true, but there are certain things that, you know, affect our economy that don't affect theirs. So if they were to take out our internet, fine. But if we were to sanction Russian gas, that's something we're all interconnected. And, you know, Europe greatly depends on, on Russian gas. They're a part of NATO. So it's getting very complicated. But I think, you know, cybersecurity is a way for them to attack us uh, kind of covertly, not directly. And it's probably difficult to prove that they've even done it in the first place. 
Yeah, it's a good point about the Russian sanctions. I remember that Germany in particular uh, was increasingly dependent on Russian oil because they had decided to start making their transition over to green energy. And they basically had to either delay plans or pay a lot more for their energy from uh, Russia because, they, uh, because of this issue with the Ukrainian war. So um, that's a, a good point and one that, that definitely rings true. And we'll continue to follow what happened with this AT&T outage, a lot of conspiracy theories about it. Um, Maybe we'll get to the bottom of it. Updates from the Middle East as Israel continues to prep for a potential invasion of Rafah in southern Gaza, though there might be a potential out. Reporting from the New York Times reveals that an Israeli delegation arrived in Paris earlier today for talks with senior officials from Egypt, Qatar, and the United States. The latest attempt to advance a deal for a ceasefire with Hamas and the release of the hostages held in Gaza. The negotiations come as Israeli airstrikes continue to bomb large parts of the country that have seen nearly 30,000 dead Palestinians in an unprecedented humanitarian crisis develop. Meanwhile, back at home, the Pentagon has announced it has not seen any plans by the IDF to specifically protect civilians in a hypothetical invasion of Rafah. Here's a Pentagon spokeswoman saying just that. Has the IDF provided any plans to DOD about, about for its plan to protect civilians ahead of any kind of ground invasion? I'm not aware of any plan fully presented to the, to the United States to review. Again, we're not, we're not asking to check their homework. That news comes as the world leaders gathered at the G20 conference in Brazil almost unanimously agree that the only way forward in the region is a two-state solution, whereby both Palestine and Israel have their own states. Brazil's foreign minister, Mauro Vieira, said, quote, There was virtual unanimity in the two-state solution as the only solution to the conflict, while European Union foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell added that there is not going to be peace, not going to be sustainable security for Israel, unless the Palestinians have a clear political prospect to build their own state. And I'd love to get your perspective on this, Jessica, as we um, seem to be inching somewhat closer to perhaps a ceasefire, perhaps to some kind of two-state solution. I'm not convinced that either side of this conflict really wants a two-state solution. This seems to be sort of a conceit from the Americans and the Western Hemisphere that this is the proper solution to this problem. I don't think either side has really indicated that that's possible, that it's likely, or that if they were even to go forward with it, that it would last very long. Yeah, Palestine really hasn't been given much of a say in this in terms of you know, actions. When you look at what Israel has done to Palestine, they've essentially seized Gaza, they've seized parts of the West Bank. And what's happening now is you have the United States saying that they support a Palestinian state post-war, but still providing weapons to Israel as they continue to kill civilians and take land. There is a case on apartheid on the floor of the ICJ. And this is separate from the Israeli uh, genocide case charged by South Africa. And you had a United States State Department official, Richard Visek, say, you know, on the floor of this hearing that a movement towards Israel's withdrawal from the West Bank and Gaza requires consideration of Israel's very real security needs. So essentially saying that they should stay and occupy that territory seems to be contrary to their goal of having a Palestinian state post-war. You also have the United States repeatedly saying that they don't support the killing of civilians, but they're not asking to see the plan for the ground invasion. We have reports from surgeons that have gone from the United States to serve in war zones, and it's not their first time doing so. 
And what they're saying they're seeing in Gaza is a complete annihilation. There was one surgeon who said after operating on so many orphans, she couldn't count and watching them get wheeled away to other parts of the hospitals without any loved ones to look after them. She encountered a bunch of children on one day, ages five to eight years old, with single sniper shots to the head. If there's any evidence to the contrary that Israel is, uh, you know, protecting civilian lives and intentionally preventing children and women who are innocent from being killed, it's this, the fact that it's single sniper shots. It's not that they were, you know, in the zone of effect of a bomb when they were trying to bomb a Hamas base or what have you. It seems very intentional, their annihilation of Palestinians. And so it's really going to hurt anyone's trust of Israel or the United States in any negotiations around what things will look like post-war. Yeah, I, I definitely want to be careful with that testimony just because I know we're equally skeptical of testimony in regards to what happened on October 7th from Israeli witnesses or witnesses from the IDF. So definitely want corroboration on that before I weigh in on it too much. But I will say, you know, the uh, the defense minister from Israel has, has basically tried to continue to rope the U.S. into this. Uh, they're obviously already providing tons of aid, tons of weaponry, while that State Department official says we're not going to check their homework. If there's any reason why you would provide aid to another country, it's so that you can have some say in the way that they behave, the way that they operate. That's one of the things uh, that should come with foreign aid is that there are strings attached. That's the whole way that this is supposed to work. Uh, but the defense minister from Israel has said that they want to basically have U.S. peacekeepers in the region after a, a two-state solution is struck. Um, it's described, actually, as a multinational task force led by the U.S. with European and Middle Eastern partners that should oversee the rehabilitation of Gaza. And my perspective on this is, first of all, this isn't our problem. Um, and if Israel, too, decides that they're going to uh, to wage war in a way that effectively destroys Gaza, kills tens of thousands of civilians, then it should be up to them if they want to exercise any control in that region to help rebuild uh, what they've destroyed. It shouldn't be the U.S.'s responsibility to then go in and clean up the mess. Um, and, and all of this is, is still tied to the fact that, of course, the U.S. is providing aid for this continued war. And uh, we're getting into ourselves into this sticky situation where now we're being expected to stay in the region, to put boots on the ground in the region, and basically have ties to this conflict for, I mean, who knows how long, the foreseeable future, when I think it should be incumbent upon the two parties actually involved in this to work out their solution, as opposed to expecting the U.S. to basically play peacemaker um, for decades to come. Right. And we're getting a lot of empty rhetoric coming from the Biden administration in saying they care a lot about civilian casualties and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Biden has said it's a top priority of his to ensure that aid is given to the Palestinians that are experiencing a blockade from Israel, preventing food, water and medical supplies from getting in. Many Gazans right now are drinking water that is not even seen fit for animals. They're experiencing a widespread disease from drinking this, this water. Some of it has sewage in it from not having access to food, from having extreme inflation and shortages of the food that is available in Gaza. And right now we have about a dozen UNRWA employees that are under investigation. Israel has not provided any evidence yet that these individuals were a part of October 7th, 
but out of an abundance of precaution, the United Nations has fired them anyway. But still, despite this precaution taken by the United Nations, and this being really the largest humanitarian assistance organization operating in Gaza right now, the United States has frozen funding going towards it, but is still giving $14 billion in the latest Senate package to this uh, to Israel for weapons, while simultaneously restricting the aid going to the UNRWA. There's a provision in that same bill giving military assistance to Israel that would restrict uh, the U.S. government from giving any funding to the UNRWA in the future, which is just really concerning because that means we have really no other way to get it there. And the United States is, is really not equipped to, you know, start their own mission of providing assistance into Gaza. It requires a lot of infrastructure on the ground that the, the UN is really the only organization that has it. And so it seems to me that you can't really say, you know, you want to help civilians and you want to make sure they get the assistance they need, but you're giving money for weapons that are being used to kill civilians while restricting any aid going towards the people that need it the most. Yeah, I saw an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal um, just, I believe it was yesterday, it came out from a former UNRWA investigator. And they took issue with the idea of firing the employees who were accused of orchestrating or being involved in the October 7th attack and said they should have been suspended pending the investigation. And now he thinks that even if they are found to have aided in the terror effort on October 7th, that because the UNRWA jumped the gun and fired them, that there won't be any accountability if that does turn out to be the case. Basically saying, I wouldn't be surprised if they were involved, given there are terrorist ties within UNRWA, but the way that they handled this situation was improper and is going to prevent either accountability or an independent full investigation of the matter um, because of the, the decision to really get out over their skis and fire these people immediately. And, and so he's sort of sounding the alarm of how this situation was handled. Yeah, it sounds to me like the U United Nations is going forward with an investigation, uh, even still with the employees fired. So, you know, we're waiting to see what evidence Israel has as well. They have not presented their evidence that these 12 employees, they said it was about a dozen UNRWA employees that they believe were involved. Uh, we just don't know what they were up to, what the accusations even are. Israel has been really resistant to give any details. But I think just the firing of these employees, you know, they're no longer serving in the UNRWA in Gaza, that should be enough for the United States to say, well, this is the agency providing humanitarian aid and assistance. We have said to our people in multiple press conferences, the administration has, that they are providing assistance to Gaza. It's, it's a complete lie to say that that's what's happening when they've decided to freeze their assistance going to the UNRWA. And so that's really dishonest of the Biden administration to say something like that. But I think on the world stage as well, the United States is in jeopardy because we just vetoed the third UN resolution for a ceasefire. And Britain was the only other country that didn't you know, vote for the ceasefire, they abstained. So the United States was the lone no vote in the Security Council yet again. Yeah, and just to clarify, this individual is uh, not a UNRWA investigator, but an investigator with the UN's Office of Internal Oversight Services, or OIOS, and pointed out that the heaviest disciplinary measure the UN can impose on a staff member is dismissal, which of course has already happened. So even if this investigation does bear out the facts of this case and, and find that these 12 employees or more were in fact, were in fact involved, um, there's really nothing else that they can do in terms of making sure it doesn't happen again. Um, uh, the current 
uh, OIOS, or excuse me, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has said that these individuals will be held accountable, including through criminal prosecution, but the UN doesn't have prosecutorial uh, authority. So they've basically already done the most of what they can do. And um, this investigation, he says, is meaningless. We're going to keep following this all for you. Um, new developments all the time, of course. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Biden has announced $1.2 billion of student debt relief for nearly 153,000 student loan borrowers and plans to email each person so they know who to thank for it. According to The Hill, this comes through the saving of a valuable education save repayment plan. This portion of loan forgiveness through the save plan was initially planned for July, but the education department identified eligible borrowers sooner. Previously, the White House shared it will try to give student debt forgiveness to those experiencing, quote, hardship. The White House is proposing that hardship is determined by factors such as, quote, a borrower's total student loan balance and required payments relative to household income and whether a borrower has high cost burdens for essential expenses like health care or child care, the Hill reports. So I think Biden pushing student loan forgiveness to this extent to really tailor and means test the program is a, a disservice to the people of the United States of America. When we think of the Paycheck Protection Program, PPP loans, there was forgiveness for those loans because it was deemed to be the right thing to do, that the country was in a time of economic hardship to avoid a recession. There was a lot of economic stimulus programs, and this would help a lot of the businesses, many small businesses across the United States of America continue operating through this period of economic hardship during the COVID pandemic. Now, those loans were forgiven. In the case of student loan debts, it is true that we were in a time of recession. The 2008 financial crisis is when we saw tuition skyrocket and we saw student loan debt increase by 100%. And this was largely because people were sheltering. They didn't want to enter the job market because the job market was a bad one to enter. They were told going to college would help them, you know, do better in life, get better jobs later on. It used to be the case in the 70s that you could afford college tuition while working a minimum wage job. And so this huge change was really unjust. It's something that made for-profit colleges really rich and people servicing these loans really rich at the expense of people just trying to do the best they can, everyday working people in the United States. And so it's the right thing to do economically to free up this capital so people can live a normal life in the U.S. They can afford a car, a house to start a family, because right now student loan debts are getting in the way of that. And that's not something that just applies specifically to people experiencing hardship, but really everyone that's incurred a lot of student loan debt. I would say that there's a fundamental difference between the PPP loans and student debt, and primarily it's that the program for PPP loans was written so that they would be forgiven only if they were used for small businesses to continue to pay workers' salaries during the pandemic. So it was really working people who were supposed to benefit the most from that program. Of course, there was a lot of PPP fraud. A lot of people did not continue to pay their workers. Those funds should absolutely be recouped, and the businesses who took advantage of it should absolutely be punished. But it was a condition of those loans that if they were used to continue to pay workers' salaries or hourly wages, that they would be forgiven. When you take out a student debt, 
the loan is written such that you have to repay it. So I think there's a fundamental difference there. I am sympathetic to the idea that there are a lot of 18-year-olds or 17-year-olds who believe that because they go to college, they're going to be able to pay back this debt, and they're sort of convinced by some predatory loan companies that they are uh, going to get a massive return on their investment, and convinced by the colleges, by the way. But I don't think that that's a justification for the type of redistributive program that we're talking about with student loan forgiveness. One of the fundamental problems that I have with student loan forgiveness, whether it's means-tested or not, in this case, the means testing is just that you have a lot of debt. It doesn't really have anything to do with your income or your earning potential, is that it's a transfer, a wealth transfer, from the majority of Americans who didn't go to college to the minority who did. And so you're actually ending up taking money away from individuals who are part of the working class, people who merely have a high school degree, um, to people who have a higher earning potential because they made the decision to go to college. And that is just fun fundamentally unfair. It seems perverse to me to take from the working class to give to the upper middle to upper classes who are primarily the people who hold student debt. The majority of student debt is also held by people who went on to get masters and PhDs. So do we really think that a plumber, for example, should be on the hook for the debt that was taken on by a doctor or someone who has decided to go into academia? I just find that to be very fundamentally unfair. The second issue I have with student loan forgiveness is that it only incentivizes those tuition hikes that you were talking about. When colleges know that students are going to continue to take out massive loads of debt because they are operating under the assumption that they're never going to have to pay it off, they're only further incentivized to continue to make the cost of college prohibitively expensive and people will take out those loans. So I think the proper solution here is not to do this massive wealth transfer, but to one, seize the endowments of the universities and make them pay off the student debt. They're the ones who uh, are supposed to provide a return on investment when students go there. They're the ones who are supposed to make sure that when students graduate, they have a high earning potential and that they're able to pay off whatever debt they may have taken out. So I think universities should absolutely be on the hook for this, not the American taxpayer. And second, I think this money would be better spent investing and in changing the way our economy works such that young people don't feel like they have to go to college in order to have a sound economic future. We should be investing in job training programs. We should be investing and in incentivizing businesses to hire non-college graduates and making that a viable career option the way that it was 30, 40 years ago, instead of making it the presumption that everyone has to go to college in order for them to be a valuable person in the marketplace. Yeah, let's start with the PPP loans. So there's two reasons someone could have their PPP loan forgiven. One is that they prove that they did spend it on payroll, but there's also, also a non-payroll forgiveness program, and that applies to any businesses who spent the money on mortgage interest payments, on any businesses who spent it on rent or lease payments, so covering the lease for businesses, and also business utility payments. So I agree that only the loans forgiven should be uh, loans that went to payroll to pay the salaries of worker as the policy intended, but it turns out that's really not how this, this program is shaking out. And so when we look at student loans altogether and the student loan debt crisis, it really is a huge problem that so many universities that were for-profit universities emerged during the financial crisis when we saw college attendance go up 
it's it's a huge problem that they didn't increase the value of education while increasing the cost of attending college. And this is one of those kinds of schemes that really falls under uh, the description of price gouging. When you have a financial crisis in the United States of America and a subsequent big recession, you have all of these people that need to make ends meet. They need to work to make a living in order to put food on the table, pay their rent. And so it's a really tough decision to live in a market, to live in an economy that should be regulated by Congress to a degree that protects people from this kind of exploitation. Corporations and, you know, for-profit institutions included and public institutions included should not be able to extremely raise the price of tuition just because they're seeing more kids want to go to school. There should be some sort of regulation of the economy so that they're getting more in return if they're paying more. And that really wasn't the case. So in order to return our economy back to something more regular, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be one thing without the other, right? Student loan debt forgiveness for everyone who's in debt currently, and that means the working class is left out. People who have paid off their loans should definitely receive some kind of tax rebate in the amount that they paid back on student loans, interest included, $2 trillion of student loan debt in the United States. And we don't know how much of that is accrued interest. That's another huge part of this is that, you know, school prices were raised, tuition was raised so, raised so much because people were making money off of the interest payments and the consolidation and student loan servicing fees. So it became kind of a money-making scheme. And to exploit everyday people in America, working people, I was a working class person who went on to go to college, I think it's wrong. And for that to be corrected involves dealing with the debt crisis that we have, but also finding policies going forward that regulate how people can get the education they need to contribute to the economy. If the United States had no one going to university at all, our economy would collapse. People need that kind of training to be doctors, to, to be lawyers, to be engineers, to do things that our economy depends upon at the most basic level. And so we really need those things to be affordable as they were back in the 70s. All right, we're gonna have to leave it there. We'll be back with more Rising after this. President Joe Biden met with late Putin critic Alexei Navalny's widow, Yulia, but in what is becoming an alarmingly frequent trend, called her by the wrong name, Yolanda. Take a look. We're going to be announcing the sanctions against Putin, who is responsible for his death, tomorrow. And uh, but one thing I made that was made clear to me is that uh, Yolanda is going to, she's going to continue to, to fight the fight on the way. Now, meanwhile, as Americans continue to criticize President Biden for his age and mental fitness, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman said that any Democrats who criticize Biden might as well be wearing a MAGA hat because they're helping get Trump reelected. This comes as Biden's job approval rating dropped to a new low, according to a new Gallup poll. Biden's job approval has shot down to 38% below the 50% threshold that has typically led to re-election for incumbents. So it's not looking too good for Biden. There was a tweet by the chief White House correspondent for News Today Africa in Washington, where it was just Biden walking to you know, his aircraft, I believe. He was just walking. And the caption was, Biden looks especially strong today, full of vigor. And people pointed out that we're talking about the president like he's someone's seven-month-old learning how to walk. Like, oh, he's looking really strong today. He's the leader of the free world. Like, we shouldn't say he's strong just for walking around. 
I think the Russia sanctions plan, I will say, is ridiculous to say that, you know, Navalny's wife is going to, you know, to some degree keep fighting. The fight that Navalny was involved in in Russia was extremely questionable. The fact that the official U.S. agency or organization, the National Endowment for Democracy, was giving $6.8 million to Russian activists to support their activities during election years and named Navalny as one of the recipients before they adopted the rule to not publicly name them. It, it seems like the United States has been meddling in Russian elections in the direction of supporting Navalny, who was a part of the the very you know right wing nationalist part of Russian politics. You know, people spreading the message Russia for Russia, take back Russia, saying things like we should remove any federal subsidies for the caucuses, which were you know mostly Muslim low income people, saying that they were cockroaches to be exterminated. This was a guy who attended rallies with a lot of Nazi flags and swastikas, and the fact that we've chosen to liken him to Martin Luther King Jr in his memory is just really absurd to me. I remember people pointing out as well that Michael McFaul, who was the U.S. ambassador to Russia, he was appointed in 2012 and served until 2014, rose to that position around the same time that Alexei Navalny started to become very popular and become sort of this heralded figure in the Western Hemisphere. Um, just an interesting coincidence, perhaps, but maybe not. Um, going back for a bit to this Biden issue, I think you were referring to a tweet from Simon Ataba. Um, I hope that he was being sarcastic, just knowing Simon, but... Um, funny nonetheless. I think that this is becoming a, a bigger problem for Biden by the day. Obviously, the polls continue to skew in the direction of Americans believing that he is far too old and far too mentally incompetent to be president. I think it's at 86 percent. Last I checked, that believe he is too old to be president. Um, most Americans believe that he should step aside and allow another Democrat to take over. And with John Fetterman making this case that Basically, everyone has to shut up about Joe Biden, particularly Democrats, because if they talk about what's really happening, what's in front of their eyes, that it's helping Trump is uh, a really interesting tack to take here. Because I would think if you're a member of the Democratic Party right now, you probably want the person to be the nominee who is best positioned to defeat the former president. And right now, polling shows a very tight race with Trump having a slight edge and with and Biden with a very low approval rating and lots of concerns about his health. So the earlier that you're able to potentially convince Biden to step aside, and then have some kind of brokered convention where Biden selects his successor and the Democratic Party machine gets behind them. The earlier that process really starts, I think the better chance that Democrats have to leave the, the Biden stain behind them and run someone who might be a more appropriate challenger to Trump. So I just don't find Fetterman's logic here to be quite in keeping with uh, with what you would say if you really do want the best chance for Democrats to win in 2024. Yeah, I, I really couldn't agree more with that assessment of what the Democratic Party's up to and what's you know best for people who care about the, the left in the United States. Biden could very well secure the nomination and then endorse someone else uh, instead of having delegates go to the Democratic National Convention and cast her ballot for Biden, he could say, you know, I'm endorsing someone else. I'm too old. I'm going to step aside. Like, thank you for making me the nominee. But we've decided to handpick this other candidate. Delegates who are here for me, please vote for this other candidate. This is a strategy that's been written about quite a bit. 
And it's a liberal fantasy so that instead of Biden stepping aside and we have the Democratic Party base pick a replacement now, you have Biden and people within the Democratic establishment and leadership picking the replacement. But it's better than Biden. I don't think by criticizing Biden, someone's supporting Donald Trump. It's ridiculous to think that in a system where we have establishment candidates handpicked all of the time, that criticizing them means you like the other guy. It's just not how it works. I think anyone who criticizes Biden is they're doing it because they love the country, because they want a different future for the country. They see, you know, the flaws in his policies. They see that he's not making good decisions, especially on the front of foreign affairs recently with the support of Israel and the Israel war on Palestine. And now with the sanctions on Russia, it's all, it's not going to hurt Putin if the United States sanctions Russia. It's going to hurt the everyday people in Russia if we do things that harm their economy, as we attempted to when we said that uh, we are going to sanction Russia following their invasion of Ukraine. It resulted in the, the ruble immediately dropping in value. That doesn't hurt Putin. Putin's going to be fine. He's going to have his mansions. He's going to have his nice cars. He's going to have his food and his caterers and live a very comfortable life. It's everyday Russian people that will be harmed. This isn't a strategy that benefits the United States. So for him to not learn from that mistake and for him to decide to pursue sanctions again, I think speaks to his mental state as well. We need someone who is younger in their vision for what the United States should be in the future, but also who has the wherewithal to be present in meetings and not get people's names wrong. And so Fetterman, it's weird seeing him shill for the establishment of the Democratic Party when, you know, he used to be kind of progressive and an independent thinker. Yeah, he's uh, he's changed on a lot of his stances, apparently, and, and no longer even considers himself progressive. I mean, just a few weeks ago, members of the right were actually cheering him on for some of his stances, particularly on Israel. Um, I imagine now after these Biden comments that maybe they're not so happy with him anymore. Um, but to your point about his stances on foreign policy, Biden, that is, I think it's an important point because there's not a lot of clarity on how much of foreign policy is actually currently being led by Joe Biden himself. The Spectator recently ran a piece identifying Jake Sullivan as really the architect of a lot of the Biden administration's foreign policy. Of course, we know that the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, has been in and out because he's suffering from prostate cancer and has been undergoing a lot of surgeries with resulting complications that has had him passing off duties to his undersecretary, who uh, at one point was on vacation in Puerto Rico. And so I think there's just a lot of questions in general around the administration about who's really in charge. And I don't think anyone really believes at this point that it's Joe Biden. And so you have all of these aides and other government officials, other cabinet members who are sort of jostling and jockeying for positioning to try to be the decision maker in lieu of Biden being able to have that position for himself. So you end up with all of these really contradictory statements, contradictory policy decisions that don't make a whole lot of sense because there really isn't that singular figure who's making that final call. And obviously, when it comes to foreign policy and national security, that is a huge problem for the American people and their ability to, to be safe. Uh, if the U.S. foreign policy is that inconsistent, you're going to end up leading uh, yourself into a lot of unnecessary conflict, which is exactly what we've seen with the rise in instability around the rest of the world. We're out of time. We'll be right back with more Rising after this. There's something rotten in the state of Iowa. Republicans have seemingly targeted Auditor Rob Sand after a series of reports that bring corruption in the Hawkeye state to the fore. 
Last year, The Atlantic published a glowing article titled The Most Dangerous Democrat in Iowa, accusing Republicans of attempting to, quote, defang the last remaining Democrat in office in Iowa. The Atlantic highlighted a bill passed last March limiting the auditor's access to information. This comes after a series of audits seemingly revealing fraud to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars in for a local county health department. Additionally, Sand uncovered that an Iowa Board of Parole member was not attending certain hearings required by state law. To Sand, this is a sign of corruption festering in Iowa. Take a look. Government corruption and secrecy are growing in the state of Iowa. Government corruption and secrecy will grow further if SF 2311 passes this year. It is no coincidence that yesterday, the same day that Republican insiders that authored last year's pro-corruption bill advanced a new bill, again, despite bipartisan opposition, to further destroy anti-corruption checks and balances. It would replace the state auditor chosen by the people of the state of Iowa with one insiders will handpick with no bidding requirement and no means for independent oversight of their audits. These insiders want a state auditor who is a lapdog, not a watchdog. Here to join us and discuss is Iowa State Auditor, the man, the myth, the legend, Rob Sand. Welcome to Rising. How are you, Jessica? I'm doing well. I'm very happy to have you on. Can you walk us through, for our viewers who might not be familiar, with some of the most recent exposés of corruption across Iowa, thanks to your work? Yeah, and this really goes back all the way through my first term when we uncovered a record amount of misspent money. I never imagined that the reaction to uncovering a record amount of misspent money doing the job as well as it had ever been done would be to literally ratchet down on our ability to find misspent money. That to me is the craziest piece about this. We have gone after local entities. We have gone after state government. We have gone after Democrats and Republicans. And the simple truth is that right now, you know, in any state government, especially one controlled by one party, you've got a small number of insiders that are truly in control of things and they don't like it. They don't want accountability. And so they're going to now, after last year, having taken away our ability to access certain documents, going to remove us all together from auditing the state. The state auditor who's elected by the people of the state of Iowa will no longer audit the state. I don't get it. And it looks like, Rob, one of the, the first things you uncovered was that the Iowa government, government, particularly Governor Kim Reynolds, had apparently tried to use COVID funds to pay for an update to the state's network, um, that is their computer network. And it turns out that the contract that they signed before, uh, the, the contract that they signed to update the network was signed before um, the pandemic actually started and those COVID relief funds were released. Can you walk us a little bit through um, that uh, scenario and what exactly happened and how the governor has responded to your work? Absolutely. That was the single biggest item, $20 million just right there, uh, where they tried to use CARES Act funds where it was never even remotely going to qualify. Jessica, the most interesting piece of that is that they actually went to the legislature before the pandemic and asked for funds to switch to Workday. Now, of course, the governor's former chief of staff works for Workday. The legislature said no, and then when the pandemic came along, they just decided to use those CARES Act funds anyway, even though the legislature said that they weren't interested in funding the program. Now, I want to get into the fact that 
Rob Sand is extremely popular in Iowa. Rob, you're popular among Republicans and Democrats, and it seems to be the case across the country that Americans are just sick of corruption in government. Now, this effort to remove the state auditor from the ability to audit the state or you know, eliminate your role entirely, it, it seems to be an unpopular political move by those attempting to execute it is your sense that they just don't care? And is your sense that this would be an unpopular move and that people in Iowa really do, as I've seen, I've lived there, uh, really value your work? You know, I, I, I can tell you that I had an astronomical number of people come up to me at the state fair last year and say something to the effect of, I'm not a Democrat, but if they're going after you, you must be doing your job. And I, I think that to me, the people who are pushing this bill they don't care about accountability and they don't want accountability. They recognize and they exploit the fact that voters truly are stuck in a system where they only have two realistic choices. They think that they have enough people effectively captured that they're not gonna vote for the other side. And so they, they think that they can be corrupt and then they can destroy checks and balances and there won't be accountability for them. Governor Reynolds has tried to defend this piece of legislation that would take some of the power away from your office, the auditor's office. And she says that the Iowans, ex that Iowans expect the executive branch to work things out when there are disagreements, saying to go to the courts to have executive branch agencies competing against each other, taxpayers have to pay for it twice. And I just don't think it's unreasonable that we can come to some resolution through the arbitration process. Um, what do you make of her comments about um, that fundamental tension between you guys and, and her attempts to outsource the auditing to independent outside agencies? Yeah, I'm actually glad that you brought that up because that was another piece of last year's law that we hadn't even talked about yet. So the biggest piece was they made this long list of documents that the state auditor can't look at, which Jessica, I'm pretty sure you, me, anyone else who's ever getting audited would love to be able to say, yeah, you can look at these documents, but not these ones over here. The crazier piece is if we have a dispute over what documents we think that we can look at, the governor's bill last year set up a dispute resolution mechanism that's a three-person panel. They took away our ability to go to independent judges, and instead they created a three-person panel with one person from the state agency that we're auditing. Nine times out of 10, that is gonna be someone who works under the governor. One person from our office, and a third person appointed by the governor. So sure, she doesn't think that it's unreasonable that we should go through this arbitration process to resolve the dispute. I think everybody can understand how that resolution process is going to uh, finish its decision. Yeah, that's absolutely maddening. Has your sense of what Republicans feel in the state towards you just been that, that they don't want to be audited, they don't want to be held accountable, that there's corruption going on and that's really all it is? Or do you think what they're really up to is, you know, trying to get a Republican auditor that's more friendly to the things they want to spend money on? Do you really feel like it's just they don't want to be held accountable for the corruption in the state or that there's something more going on here? You know, one thing I want to emphasize is there has been bipartisan opposition to both last year's bill and this year's bill. There mm -hmm. were six Republicans in the Iowa House last year who said, heck no, this is a terrible idea. So far, this bill has passed the Senate. Uh, there was in committee a Republican who voted against it who was absent for the floor vote. But we have bipartisan opposition in both situations. That, to me, emphasizes that we still have people in uh, both parties who recognize that checks and balances are good and that government waste is bad. So I do think it really comes down to a small number of insiders 
who just look at the situation and they don't want someone to question them. They are, um, they are into the power that they have been given. They don't want someone to counter the power that they have been given. And they don't care that the voters elected someone from the opposite party to help be a part of those checks and balances. I mean, this bill that they're running this year would literally take the voters' decision and kind of pat the voters on the head and say, well, it's nice that you wanted to elect Sam to audit the state. We're just going to pick who we want instead. All right, Rob Sand, thank you so much for joining us on Rising today. We'll be back with more after this. a decision by the Alabama Supreme Court that ruled frozen embryos are people and deserving of the same rights as children, the political sphere erupted into partisan bickering. Vice President Kamala Harris claimed the court's decision was hypocritical, referring to how the court had also restricted access to abortion and claimed it was part of Republicans' larger assault on reproductive issues. Here's Harris. Most recently, putting access to IVF at risk. Think about that. Individuals, couples who want to start a family are now being deprived of access to what can help them start a family. So on the one hand, the proponents are saying that an individual doesn't have a right to end an unwanted pregnancy. And on the other hand, the individual does not have a right to start a family. And the hypocrisy abounds on this issue. Harris also used the opportunity to hit at likely GOP nominee, former President Trump, over his role in the death of Roe v. Wade, saying, when you look at the fact that the previous president of the United States was clear in his intention to handpick three Supreme Court justices who would overturn the protections of Roe v. Wade, and he did it, and that's what got us to this point today. Nikki Haley took the opposite track. Haley said, quote, embryos to me are babies. When you talk about an embryo, to me, that's a life. And so I do see where that's coming from when they talk about that. Of note, Haley has stipulated that she does not endorse the Alabama decision. She just agrees that an embryo is an unborn baby. The court's decision has caused a ripple effect in the rest of the state, though the court hasn't officially banned IVF. Local news reported that the University of Alabama at Birmingham Health System has paused in vitro fertilization procedures following an Alabama Supreme Court decision due to fear of criminal prosecution and lawsuits. The University of Alabama is the state's major university hospital system. Here now to discuss the decision and IVF more broadly is Emma Waters from the Heritage Foundation. Emma, thank you for joining. And let's start by breaking down a little bit of what the case was actually about, because I think there's some misconceptions here. This case was about a couple that was going through IVF and their fertilized embryos uh, were being held in storage and were accidentally destroyed by an employee. Now, they actually sued the IVF clinic um, under the harm to minors uh, statute in Alabama, saying that they should be awarded damages. So can you talk a little bit about the, the precept for the case and then what the court actually decided? Yeah, absolutely. So a few things with the facts of the case. This was not only one set of parents, but it was actually three different sets of parents whose embryos were destroyed. 
And the part of the case that is particularly notable is it wasn't actually an employee of the fertility clinic. It was actually a patient from the adjoining hospital who wandered into the clinic and found the embryos in an unsecured freezer, which never should have been the case to begin with. When this patient picked up the tray of embryos, the freezer burn was so severe that the patient dropped and shattered all of the embryos, actually killing each one of them. So the three sets of parents, when they were alerted that their children that they had entrusted to the fertility clinic had been destroyed because of an outsider who wandered into an unsecure area, they sued the fertility clinic under the wrongful death of a minor act, saying that they had entrusted the well-being of their embryonic children to the fertility clinic, but the fertility clinic, due to their own negligence, had actually resulted in the death of their children, and they wanted some sort of legal um, assistance for that loss that they suffered. So how would this work if this law were to continue to stay in place in Alabama? It sounds like the largest hospital in Alabama has now stopped all of their IVF practices uh, because they're worried that they'll face criminal charges in the event that they are prosecuted if embryos have the same rights as children, these fertilized eggs that they now have, if they're destroyed because the, the mother and father don't want to use them, they only want to use a fraction of the eggs that were successfully fertilized, does that mean now the hospital and the parents are charged you know, with murder? How do you see this moving forward? So the Supreme Court case in Alabama only deals with the question of can frozen embryos be protected under the wrongful death of a minor act? So the court was very careful to say that their ruling only extends to that part of the question. So the ruling basically says that if um, other embryos were wrongly destroyed, that parents could sue the fertility clinic for negligence or careless behavior if they felt that their children had been destroyed in a way that was somehow the fertility clinic's fault. That's the only extent really that the um, ruling speaks to. Um, the ruling does go into detail and say that the finer questions that you're asking about, about embryo destruction broadly, about general practices within the fertility industry, that that will have to be answered by the Alabama state legislature going forward to see really what the particulars are of the case and how they want to apply it. With the case of the University of Alabama shutting down their fertility clinic, all this really suggests is that maybe that they themselves are uncertain if they've been treating embryos with the best possible care. So really, this is a win for parents and the children involved who have entrusted these fertility clinics with their children, investing a lot of time and money and emotional difficulty in this process. And it seems that like the baseline expectation that parents should have is that fertility clinics will treat these embryos with the absolute care. So if clinics are starting to shut down or uh, cease practicing for the time being, it means that they're reassessing their standards to make sure that they're actually doing the thing they're telling parents that they'll do, namely protecting their children. I saw some uh, consternation from critics of this decision as well, Emma, um, in accordance with one of the justices' language that he used. Um, he determined, in his opinion, that it is uh, rights from the creator, um, particularly the right to life, that extends to an embryo, and people were accusing him of violating separation from church of church and state. He pointed out that the Alabama Constitution specifically uses the term sanctity of life when describing um, the, the right to life that's given to all human beings in that state. What is your take on that particular um, part of the ruling and his decision to invoke a sort of religious framework in terms of determining the rights of embryos? Of course. So this was in the concurring opinion by Chief Justice Parker, where he did a deep dive into the state constitution's understanding of the sanctity of human life. 
So it's really important to note here that his opinion, that none of the opinion actually added to or changed how Alabamians had been thinking about the sanctity of human life. They only extended that application from children who were born it's already been extended to children who were in the womb, and now they've extended it to embryonic children. And so he goes through the detailed history of how Alabamians had understood sanctity of human life. And this included everyone's from theologians, um, quotes from scripture, as well as just natural law teaching. And the thing I think that stands out the most in his opinion is that he recognized that each human life has an incalculable value and worth that goes far beyond our ability to, uh, to describe it and even our ability to quantify it in some form or fashion. And that within each one of us, there's this deeper truth that says, no, there is something about the unborn child, regardless of what state they are in their development, that is worthy of our protection. Um, because, right, like if this embryo is implanted in a woman and continues to grow naturally, it will result in a live baby. Um, many people are the result of IVF, right? Um, and they began in this embryonic state outside of the womb. And so he simply said that the sanctity of human life, like we've always understood it, that children have this inherent worth and dignity should be applied to humans at all stages of development, not just those who are walking and talking around today. I'm very curious about this Chief Justice Tom Parker responsible for the decision in the Alabama courts. It seems to me that, you know, his theocratic beliefs run pretty deep. Now, he indicated on a show he went on with a man by the name of Mr. Enlow, who's a well-known, you know, QAnon conspiracy theorist, also believes in a theocratic vision for the United States, one where we have a Christian nationalist state. Now, Justice Parker on the podcast said that he supports the, quote, Seven Mountains mandate, which is a vision for a Christian nationalist state. Parker also told Enloe on the podcast that God is equipping him with something for the very specific situation that he's facing. Uh, the judge also, or justice rather, also said that Trump is on assignment from God to work with the angels Michael and Gabriel to take down George Soros and Bill Gates, and he believes God created government and that it's heartbreaking. We've let it go into the possession of others. Now, it's concerning to me, someone who's not a Christian but living in the United States, subject to the justice system that we have, that there are judges that believe they serve God rather than the Constitution and laws that we have. Is this something that concerns either of you? So this is a really interesting point that obviously a lot of people have highlighted having concerns with here, this quote unquote theocratic vision that's being put forward. And I think what's really important to break down here, that the justice in this framing is not violating the separation of church and state that just uh, that Jefferson referenced, not even in a constitutional document, right, but like in a letter separately. That what he's doing here is he's showing how his personally held beliefs shape his worldview. And this is something that no one, regardless of what your religious affiliation is, is exempt from. We all bring our own personal worldview, our own way of seeing the world, our own beliefs about the nature of man, of woman, of the afterlife, if there is a divine, if there's not a divine being, to bear on our um the way that we address any issue, right? Like my worldview, particularly as a Christian, his worldview as a Christian, um, and yours from a different perspective are no less um, religious in the sense that we all worship something, we all view something as our highest good. And then it's a question of how that worldview shapes the way that we think about these really important issues. And so this idea that there's some sort of like myth of moral neutrality or religious neutrality just simply isn't the case in how any law has been built out, but certainly not in Western civilization. And frankly, let's look at the things he's advocating for. He says that he wants to protect unborn life so that parents who deeply desire the opportunity to bear children 
don't have their children destroyed through the carelessness of a fertility clinic. He's saying that he wants to ensure that children have the opportunity to be born, to experience life. And when adults or a financially motivated fertility industry wrongs them in some way, that he wants to hold them accountable. I don't think that this is any sort of religious extremism as much as it is just common sense barriers on how we practice the creation of human life and how we protect children at all stages of development. Yeah, I, I, I just want to be really clear, just a quick follow up. If someone were to say that they believed in the nation of Islam and you know they feel very upset that the U.S. government has fallen in the hands of someone other than Allah and that their guiding principles as a Muslim were the, the rules of Islam and that they wanted a caliphate in the United States, what would you be okay with that as well based on your opinions of religious freedom and the separation of church and state? Well, if I remember correctly, Representative Omar already effectively said that when she said that Somalia was her highest good, not the United States. And last time I checked, no one has tried kicking her out of office for saying something that clearly is very problematic because the well-being of the United States is not her number one objective. And so I think we already have examples of this all across the board that have been pushed back on rightly by many conservatives. But ultimately, what we're dealing with here is not someone saying, here's a Christian regime that we're going to lay down. Here's a Muslim regime. Here's an atheistic regime that we're laying down here. The real questions come down to specific pieces of legislation. And if we think about even how the founding of our system has been set up, we are factions warring against other factions, which meant that our founders intended different religious beliefs, different moral beliefs, different convictions to come to play here in the public square of policymaking so that we would have the opportunity to bring our different worldviews to bear and to work on policies that we think align with our vision of the good. So this is actually a very normal process here in America. This is a very normal process for how our system was set up for people to say like, hey, based on my deeply held beliefs, this is what I think is good for humans. And another person to say, based on my deeply held beliefs, here's what I think. And then we battle it out in policy and public discussions and messaging and hopefully come to a solution that one, the majority of the American people agree with, but two, that actually protects unborn life and reflects this vision of the good because we do all have um, the responsibility to be true to these deeply held beliefs that we have. And frankly, at the end of the day, if it comes down to which regime I want to live in, I would much rather live in a regime where I knew that my embryonic children were not going to be destroyed by a fertility clinic or that my unborn child would be protected um, from financially motivated actors or that my child who was born with special needs would not receive special uh, different treatment throughout her life than a regime that has no care for the unborn human life. Yeah, it's I would just... important that we quickly note for our viewers that that translation of Ilhan Omar's statements were disputed by Ilhan Omar and then fact-checked by people who speak the language, and that is not what she said. I, I would just push back a little bit and say, at the very least, um, since Ilhan Omar and other um, practicing Muslims have taken office, no one has asked them to check their beliefs at the door when they go into Congress. And I think it's a misunderstanding of Thomas Jefferson's uh, clause about separation of church and state, which was written in that letter to the Danbury Baptist, to think that anyone has to uh, reject their own moral framework when they decide to legislate. And for some reason in this country, we've got it in our minds that Christians and only Christians are the ones required to ignore every, every part of their moral framework that comes from a religious instruction when they enter government, and yet no one else is asked to do the same thing. I don't think a Christian moral framework is any less valid when deciding what's best for the country than any other type of moral framework, whether it's atheistic, agnostic, Islamic, Jewish, etc. 
And if we go back and look at that letter to the Danbury Baptists as well, we see that Thomas Jefferson was not so much concerned about religion impacting government, but about government infringing on religion. And I think we're out of time, yeah, but Jess, I want to right. give you the opportunity to have a quick response before we close it out. No, I think we're good to close it out. Thanks, Amber. You bet. More rising after this. The city of Chicago will spend a sum of $8.6 million to fund shot spotter technology for a final nine months before the program's suspension in the city. The Chicago Sun-Times reports that last-minute negotiations to extend the program led to a nine-month contract that's costing taxpayers 5% more than the previous 12 months of the program. Mayor Brandon Johnson followed through on his campaign promise to suspend Chicago police's use of the controversial technology, which advocates say is costly, inaccurate, and unfairly targets communities of color. Northwestern University, the School of Law, published some research where a whopping 89% of Chicago police deployments prompted by ShotSpotter turned up no gun-related crime, and 86% led to no report of any crime at all. Police advocates, on the other hand, say ShotSpotter is a necessary and helpful tool for Chicago cops who last year dealt with 617 murders and over 2,000 shootings. Down south, the city of Durham, North Carolina's shot spotter contract led to quicker responses and more arrests. A new report shows just two months after the city ended its contract. Per CBS 17 News, the report noted that for incidents that generated both 911 calls and shot spotter alerts, the likelihood of arrest or evidence collection did not increase. There was one such incident that allowed officers to get to a shooting victim more quickly, potentially saving that person's life. Durham police are advocating for the program's reinstatement. So, Jessica, um, I uh, am troubled by Chicago deciding to get rid of the shot spotter program. I think it's an important tool to add to um, policing, especially as we've gotten away from stop and frisk type policing. This is a, an acoustic program. Basically, um, they put up uh, these monitors around the city and they can alert police when there are gunshots and police can respond to incidents more quickly. It's particularly helpful when there's not a 911 call to go along with gunfire, which is about 80 to 90% of incidents where guns are fired in the city. Most people don't report it um, because it's uh, sadly in, in some of the more crime-ridden neighborhoods, sort of a matter of course that you would hear gunfire. And so most people don't end up calling 911. Um, so I, I'm curious about your thoughts on it, um, whether you support the ending of the contract or think that they should have continued the program um, as, a, as a tool for law enforcement to use to hopefully prevent gun violence in Chicago. Yeah, I think a cost-benefit analysis here, which seems to have been done, shows that it's really not worth it when you're seeing over 80% of the calls that are the result of this technology, you know, signaling that there was a gunshot and police need to arrive. 86% showing no crime at all. Over 80% showing there was, you know, no evidence of a, a gun being fired. To me, when I look at the, the cost of the program, that's really not worth those results. So Shop Spotter's own website says that the technology costs $10,000 per square mile to initially install and then sixty-five dollars to $90,000 per year per square mile to maintain the technology. The Chicago Police Department's covering an area of 237 square miles. 
Now, Chicago's you know mayoral office is saying they're, they've spent over $48 million since just 2018 on this technology, spending $8.6 million for just nine months of this technology. That's sending police to places where crimes aren't being committed. It seems to me a bad use of police resources. And if something else happens somewhere in the city where the police are needed, but they're responding to this technology, which seems to be faulty at best, uh, and they can't respond to where there's actually someone who who really needs support or needs help from police. That's really concerning for me. So I, I understand why the Chicago, you know, mayoral office is suspending the program. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a lot of money. I think um, there there have been cases where the police have been able to respond to shots fired more quickly and have been able to save victims' lives, which I think is a, a great thing. Um, I don't know how much money you want to put on, on one person's life. That's a, a moral question that everybody has to grapple with, I guess. But I've spoken to people who um, have, have been working with this technology. I was in Suffolk County in Long Island not too long ago with the DA's office shadowing him, and they had recently implemented it on September 6th. And they pointed out that one of the reasons why the rate of not finding a crime when they go to a gun, uh, an, an, a, a spot shotter alert is so high, 80 to 90 percent, is that they often get uh, people who are on scene who are covering for the alleged gunman or gunwoman. So there was a massive uptick, for example, in the number of people who were reporting fireworks in the middle of uh, in cities in Long Island, people reporting cars backfiring. The DA sort of um, sarcastically pointed out to me, when is the last time you actually heard a car backfire and why are we getting dozens of these reports when we show up to investigate uh, a potential gunfire incident based on the shot spotter acoustic data? Um, and ultimately, the, the technology, despite these potential roadblocks, ended up being very useful for them. They were able to identify 50% more potential shootings. There were 102 total incidents with a possible 222 rounds fired, um, including uh, 67 incidents with one single shot and then the rest with multiple shots fired. Um, and they point out that it helps in the course of police work, too, because when they get on scene, when this gun has been fired, they can either recover casings that could uh, be tested to find if they were used in the commission of other crimes, which has happened in some cases, where they discovered that a shooter who was at this scene, they get alerted to it from ShotSpotter, they collect the casings, they're able to match it to a previous murder or, 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 um, or manslaughter or shooting. And they also can pool license plates in the area for, let's say, 20 minutes before the shots were fired to 20 minutes after and find out um, who was responsible for the incident. So I think, you know, the benefits of this are, are tangible. They're real. Uh, Chicago, unfortunately, because of Mayor Brandon Johnson's campaign promise to get rid of this, waited so long to negotiate how much uh, they were the city was supposed to be paying for it that it ended up becoming more expensive, which was a shame. I think if he had just gone ahead and renewed it um, when the contract was up, then they could have gotten a more reasonable price than what they're paying now. Right, yeah, spending $9 million a year for technology that's sending police to locations where 86% of the time the crime's not being committed at all. It just 
It seems like way too much money to be spent that that money should go towards schooling. It can go towards, you know, more officers in the neighborhoods. If you, if that's really, you know, what people are worried about is that the one thing that this benefits is the response time in the case that someone is shot. You know, hiring more officers is something that $9 million a year could go towards. But I think a lot of people really want investment in community, especially when you're considering the fact that there are possibly other dangerous situations happening where a police presence would, would benefit the people of Chicago and instead having officers responding to these situations where there's nothing going on, there's also a risk there. And it's hard to consider when we look at the, the few scenarios where there are examples where someone's life was perhaps saved because of the short response time thanks to shot spotters. You know, is someone's life valued at $9 million? I think a, a lot of people would grapple with that moral question. But we also have this impossible calculation to make of what's the cost of police officers spending so much time responding to calls that are actually nothing. Are they not responding to other calls that are something? But that's not something we see reflected in the data. But we also have Cleveland and Seattle, which have tested out shot spotters and have also done away with the technology. The researcher on this Northwestern uh, you know, paper that came out in 2021 by their school of law, Jonathan Maines, just said, it seems the technology just doesn't do what it promises to do. That's not to say they can't you know, hone in it and work on it in the places where it's successful, like Durham, and then deploy the technology with the promise that they've made the necessary improvements. Yeah, I, 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 we're running out of time, and I'll allow you to respond to this, but I, I was also troubled by Mayor Brandon Johnson's explanation for why he was getting rid of Shaw Spotters. I think your assessment of the cost-benefit analysis is much more reasonable than what he and some other people in Chicago are saying, which is that they have a problem with it because they feel it targets black and brown communities. And my response to that, or my reaction to that, would be this is an acoustic technology. It obviously can't tell the race of the person who's firing the gun. And so I, I never understood that particular criticism of ShotSpotter, but I mean, maybe you have a different take on it. Why don't yeah, you, you tell us what you think on that? Yeah, it seems to me from his anecdotes that it's about the location of shot spotters. It's not covering every square mile of Chicago's police's jurisdiction, which, you know, as I said earlier, 237 square miles. That's huge. Shot spotters cost, according to their website, being $65,000 to $90,000 a year, very expensive. That would be over $15.4 million annually for the Chicago Police Department. Saying they're only spending, you know, $9 million a year does prove, you know, what the, the mayor has said in previous statements, which is that the technology is not deployed in every neighborhood. So having it in some neighborhoods that are predominantly brown and black, but not others, I think is where that comes from. Yeah, I guess my pushback on him making that argument would be that it would make sense to have the shot spotter uh, acoustic technology in neighborhoods where gun crime is higher. And unfortunately, it happens to be the case sometimes that that is uh, in majority black and brown neighborhoods. That's going to do it for us this week. Jess, as always, a pleasure spending Rising Fridays with you. We've done it again, Amber. Thanks for watching, everyone. Another one in the books. We'll be back next week. And uh, be sure to please like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts.